He wears a red suit. He comes to the house on Christmas Eve and leaves the stocking stuffed in mounds of gifts under the tree. He's big, he's jolly, and somehow has godlike omnipotence. Yes, I'm talking about Santa Claus. Spoiler alert about Santa, hide your kids in three, two, one, okay. I figured out Santa wasn't real at a very young age. Like most of you listening, any adults, you know, uh, who don't know this yet, sorry, I didn't mean to burst your bubble. Might want to take a seat, process this shit. But the concept of Claus didn't make sense to me from a very early age. It might have been one of my first conspiracy theories. How the hell are these presents getting into my house? When I asked questions, I was met with confusing nonsense, very much the same way pastors behave when you ask them a basic question about some sort of logic displayed in Christianity that doesn't really make sense. I would go, Mom, we don't have a chimney. How's this big nigga fitting into the house? And she would say, well, Santa's magic. He just slips right under the crack in the door. And I'm like, hmm... Okay, I don't hear anyone coming into the house, though, and I stayed up all night and didn't hear a thing. I only heard giggles from your room, and it smelled like you were burning something, and all the cookies were already gone when I went downstairs, and it was only like 11.15. And my mom's like, stop asking questions. Santa will know you don't believe in him, and he won't come to our house. Don't you want fucking presents? And after that, I usually shut up, because even if I was suspicious... I knew I wanted presents, and I wasn't 100% sure whether or not it would jeopardize my gifts being so skeptical. My mom realized the power that she had and would pretend to pick up the phone, even in July, threatening to tell me or tell Santa on me if I was doing stuff that I wasn't supposed to do. One year, though, my mom slipped up. We're at the store, and I guess she figured I'd be paying close attention because I was so young, but... I remember her seeing buy some of the toys or seeing her buy some of the toys that I ended up receiving from quote unquote Santa later that year. And also I remember finding those exact toys stashed in the back of the closet. So the world just hasn't been the same after that. I honestly believe that this is the root of me kind of questioning everything. I feel like how kids think about Santa has to do a lot with whether or not they'll grow up to be a conspiracy theorist or somebody who would believe 9-11 wasn't an inside job. As I got older, I started to see Christmas and Santa for what it really was, a cash grab. I grew up with a single mother and my grandmother looking after me. I came from public housing and government assistance, and I'm not ashamed. Nobody in my neighborhood ever had much, but when I went back to school after Christmas break, though, most of the poor kids I lived around had new things, new Jordans, Nintendo, new clothes, new bikes, expensive things that shouldn't be afforded and 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 if they are you could probably use the money on something else you know when you dig deeper you see that christmas is a holiday for blatant consumerism a capitalistic holiday it's supposed to be about jesus and him being our lord and savior but it's really about us not wanting our kids to feel ashamed by their peers for not having nice things and about parents not feeling like failures for not getting them those aforementioned nice things. It's about false boosts to, to your self-worth and literally boost to the economy. It combines two of my favorite things, though, when you get to the nitty-gritty of it. Eastern-based spirituality and psychedelic experiences. Don't know what I'm talking about? 
Stay tuned because this is the subject of today's episode of Hip Hop Anonymous. Yo, yo, hey everybody, new listeners, Great Panthers, and welcome to Hip Hop Anonymous, the show that is about the journey towards truth and self-discovery. I am your host, Dean Martian, and I believe those things can be achieved by examining our everyday interactions and beliefs. When we do that, we can learn things like the U.S. government spent $277,000 on pickle research in 1993. That's true. What kind of pickle research do you ask? I don't really know, and even if I did, I don't think it's worth getting into, but it was just a random fact provided to me by the randomfactgenerator.net. This is the last episode of season one. So far, we've talked about education, entertainment, sex, economics, religion, war, politics, and today, we're going to talk about work and labor. Anyone who's heard all of these episodes or plans to go back and listen to them, keep in mind, these episodes aren't as much educational as they are conversational. Like the things that I talk about can be loosely related back to the topics um, that they're centered around. But I encourage you to do your own reading about these things. In the future, I may do more focused episodes or a series about a particular subject. I'm not really sure yet, but season two currently does not have a set number of episodes. Uh, like this first season or a theme or anything like that. So if you have something that you would like for me to talk about or research, just send me an email at dean at deanxmartian.com. So I opened the show with all this Santa talk and what does it have to do with labor? Lots. Also, I just didn't want to do an episode on labor that was about a bunch of labor statistics and case studies that seemed kind of boring. I I wanted to talk about how it related to one of the biggest American traditions that is supposed to be about God, family, etc., but is actually not focused on any of these things beyond the surface. It's actually rooted in exploitation of laborers. And also, you know, exploitation of people's inability to stop themselves from impulsively buying things. You guys ready for your concept of Christmas to be changed forever? A large portion of this episode will be about the history of Christmas, where our Christmas traditions come from, and kind of like who started Christmas the way that we know it as it is. All right, let's get into it. I initially called this episode the origins of Christmas, but that's not accurate. The origins of Christmas are actually based on the ancient Roman pagan holiday Saturnalia, meant to worship the god Saturn, but we can save that for another topic. Well, another episode, I should say. This episode is more about the origins of Santa, his suit, stockings over the fireplace, reindeer, flying reindeer, I should say. Not not reindeer, That those are real. <laughs> but gifts under the tree... Um, And basically all the traditions that we adopted to celebrate um, from the Greek and Roman-born pagan holidays and adapt them to our Western consumer cultures. Where did all this lore and tradition even come from? 
After discovering the origins, all I gotta say is, thank God the D.A.R.E. program was not a thing in ancient Siberia. Drugs may be responsible for some of the coolest things about Western Christmas tradition today, even though I no longer celebrate. Before we talk about any of that, let's learn where the man Santa came from. The story originates with a boy named Nicholas, who was born in the village of Patara in the 3rd century. Sounds like a place out of Avatar The Last Airbender, but it's real. Today, we call this place Turkey, but at the time, this place was considered Greece. He had super wealthy parents who raised him to be a devout Christian. He was brought up to believe the teachings of Jesus and adopted beliefs like, sell what you own and give all your money to the poor. And St. Nick put his, well, not St. Nick yet, but Nick, just, just plain old Nick, put his faith to the test. And when his parents died and left him an immense amount of wealth, he gave it to the people. Instead of going full playboy, he decided to give his money to the poor and sick while traveling throughout the countryside and performing good deeds, very much in the spirit of Christmas, except he's actually doing it. So much so, there's tons of stories about him doing super nice, nice stuff for people. And one of them, he supposedly saved three sisters from being sold into slavery and prostitution by their own father. And this is kind of random, but it's one of the better known stories of the real St. Nick from what I read. And it's also really bizarre. Story basically goes like this. There's this guy and he used to be rich, but somehow he goes broke. The problem is he has these three daughters and they're at the age that they should be married. If they could get married, it may bring some wealth back to the family, but there's a big problem. Back in those times, young brides' families needed to be... They needed to have a dowry, right? A dowry is a gift that's given to the groom before marriage. And the better the dowry that you can offer, the better man that you can get, essentially. And, and by better, I mean wealthier, just in case you got it fucked up. And if you had a shitty dowry or no dowry, chances are you're not going to get married. And if they aren't getting married, there's none of the financial perks that a family with three girls would normally experience. So um, I guess slavery or prostitution to make up for it was considered a healthy alternative back then. Listen to episode three for more info on arranged marriages and the conspiracy of monogamy. Anyways, St. Nick hears about this somehow. I mean, I guess he does know everything. And he puts his inherited wealth to good use. Late one night, he tosses a bag of gold into an open window of their home while everybody's asleep. And fly it flies through the air and coincidentally lands in a stocking which happens to be hanging over the fireplace so look at that there's a little bit of uh you know oh there's what this stuff stockings comes from or whatever so the family wakes up and was obviously super lit to find the gold and soon after that the first daughter got married off and it was all thanks to saint nick not long after that another bag appeared into the window and the second daughter got married off and by now, the dad's getting a little suspicious, kind of creeped out. He wants to know who's doing all this. And he gets so anxious, he starts staying up at night to see who this person is. And right as rain, a third bag flew into the house while the dad was up keeping watch. So he sprang into action. He catches Nick, and he recognizes him immediately. And he's like, oh, thanks. No, I was about to kick your ass. So pretty anticlimactic. When I read this, I thought shit was, like, for real going to pop off. Like, how crazy would it have been if he just started going in like whooping St. Nick's ass on sight because he thought he was some sort of stalker or pervert or something which would have been 
kind of hypocritical for him since he was the one who was going to sell his daughters into prostitution in the first place. Like, oh yeah, I was going to sell them into sex slavery, but that was different. Not to some fucking secret pervert like you sneaking around stroking it in the bushes. Nonetheless, I imagine, you know, the ending to the story was that they all lived happily ever after or some shit like that. Except during family gatherings where one of the sisters gets drunk and grills dad for almost selling them into slavery sex slavery but uh otherwise isn't that nice good old captain save a hoe captain save three hoes wonder if that's where ho 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 came from either way you can see the idea of a guy coming to sneak gifts into a a house and how that might kind of influence you know the holiday even today can you imagine telling that story to your kids though or a teacher telling that story to some kids. Like the teacher's like, gather around, children. It's story time. And they're all like, yay. They're all excited and shit. And then it's like, today we're going to hear the story of Santa and the three hoes. And how Santa helped them find a man. So their dad won't turn them into prostitutes. Once upon a time. <laughs> like, mom, what's a prostitute? Uh, so anyway, St. Nick, he keeps doing good deeds like this. And word starts getting around about him, and uh-oh, though, things start to turn bad for our hero. One day, these Roman soldiers arrest him, right? And they force him to drag this giant sleigh across, like, heavy, dried-out dirt and shit. And allegedly, Jews have something to do with it. And then they nail poor St. Nick to this fucking giant sleigh, and they torture him until he dies. But, rejoice three days after he's crucified he resurrected to spread Christmas cheer and deliver presents to all the boys and girls of the western world wait wait hold on wait a minute wait a minute that's not right that's the wrong story okay alright but it's not very far off though Saint Nick did inevitably suffer for his faith during this time the Roman emperor Diocletian was prostitute prostituting (laughs) prosecuting Christians left and right (laughs) That would be that would be a totally different story, right? Like, ah, you get over there and suck that dick. Like, all right, all right, I'm having too much fun. So Diocletian, he's prosecuting Christians left and right, and eventually caught up with St. Nick, who is a Christian, and he was arrested and exiled and imprisoned for his faith. Ironically, the prisons were so full of bishops, priests, and deacons due to religious intolerance by, the, by Diocletian and his posse. There wasn't any room for actual criminals in the jail literally murderers murderers thieves and robbers ran loose while saint nick aka captain save a ho 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 is rotting away in a jail cell but eventually he is released and attends the council of nicaea in 325 a.d and any of you who don't know about the council of nicaea it's a meeting in ancient turkey that took place in order to construct parts of the christian doctrine and faith like helping write the bible figure out what's canon and all that stuff a lot of people believe they were just in there figuring out how to make Christianity a tool for for control. But that's a whole other episode as well. So I find it ironic that one of the guys that became the biggest myth kind of ever helped construct early Christian frameworks, which a lot of people don't believe in anymore. But um, so St. Nick's good reputation grows and he becomes known as the protector of children and sailors. His feast is celebrated on December 6th, the day of his death. December 6th is also considered a lucky day to get married because of him. 
By the Renaissance, he became the most popular saint in Europe. I go take a look at some of the Renaissance paintings of him, and he looks nothing like the jolly Saint Nick that we've all been familiarized with, though. Like, why is that? He wears an outfit similar to the Pope. It's not even red. He isn't from the North Pole. He's from fucking Greece slash Turkey. He didn't hang out with reindeer. He didn't jump through anyone's chimney. But he probably could have because he wasn't a big fat guy. He was... He was kind of like a normal, slender-looking dude. Turns out some scholars believe the basis for Santa and the many Christian traditions associated with this holiday were heavily influenced by somewhere else entirely, not even in Europe. Not now, anyways. To continue this investigation, we have to go to Siberia, near the North Pole. So in Siberia, from ancient times all the way up until today, there lives a tribe of shamanic people called the Ivanki. They're the people from of Northern Asia and in Russia, and they're recognized as the indigenous people of the land. Well, in Russia, they're re- recognized as indigenous people. That's what I'm, I didn't mean to run that all together. So they look unmistakably and stereotypically Asian. Like Chinese, like lighter skin, almond eyes, dark silky hair, and they're actually of Chinese lineage. There were many um, other ethnic groups in this area around the time as well, and many of them had similar spiritual beliefs. At this time, or at the time this story takes place, these people were mostly hunters and gatherers. They also herded reindeer. Here we go. So in fact, so much so that their livelihood is said to have depended on the health and vitality of their reindeer. They needed these animals for pretty much everything. Clothing, housing materials, tools, transportation, milk, other cultural reasons. And like I said earlier, the shamanic, uh, the Avanki were shamanic people, meaning that they practiced Eastern spirituality, like it's spirituality in that style. Like old world, I don't really like to say Eastern as much because it's just old world spirituality as it reverses, reverses, versus religion. So this takes us back to episode two, if you can recall that. And if you haven't, check it out. Um, These people, like many others in the ancient world, held shamanic ceremonies and lifestyles. They induced altered states of consciousness in one another all the time. They believed in and paid tribute to spirits and ancestors and, and more. A big part of their spiritual exploration was linked to the Amanita muscaria, also called the fly agaric. This is a mushroom, and it looks nearly identical to the mushroom that makes you bigger in Super Mario, kind of. They're red, they have white dots all over them. They, these mushrooms were very sacred to the Avanki and were regularly ingested for ritualistic purposes. Like, check this out. They only grow underneath certain evergreen trees and are considered to be gifts from God. Interesting, right? Gifts under the tree. One big thing to emphasize, these mushrooms also get you super, super high, okay? And if none of you have ever done psychedelic drugs before, here's a brief explanation of what psychedelic drugs are and what they do. This is from Wikipedia. Psychedelics are a class of drugs whose primary action is to trigger psychedelic experiences via serotonin receptor agonism, causing thought and visual slash auditory changes and altered states of consciousness. Major psychedelic drugs include mescaline, LSD, psilocybin, or mushrooms, and DMT. 
Sometimes, um, or not sometimes, studies show that psychedelics are physiologically safe and do not lead to addiction. Studies conducted using psilocybin in a psychotherapeutic setting reveal that psychedelic drugs may assist with treating alcohol and nicotine addiction. I've also heard that PTSD victims being treated with micro doses of psilocybin um, have they've been successful with doing that. Um, and that's some rarely heard positive uh, drug stories that you don't really you don't really hear that often. I always heard that stupid urban myth about these people who did drugs like LSD or shrooms and then put their baby in the oven because they thought it was a turkey, you know, or did a dude jumps off a roof because he thinks he can fly. And the comedian Bill Hicks makes a great point about this in a joke. He says, if he thought he could fly, why didn't he just take off from the ground first? Like, he's an idiot. And I, I tend to agree, but psychedelic drugs also are not for everybody. But I'll continue. Psychedelics tend to qualitatively alter ordinary conscious experiences, whereas stimulants like crack, cocaine, speed, etc. cause energized feelings, and opioids like Oxycontin, heroin, fentanyl, etc. produce a relaxed euphoric state. The psychedelic experience is often compared to non-ordinary forms of consciousness, such as trance, meditation, yoga, religious ecstasy, dreaming, and even near-death experiences. So you get it? Some drugs are aimed at making the body feel good, and psychoactive drugs make reality different for you. What I'm trying to communicate is, it's not all that hard to see why these mushrooms were considered gifts from God or sacred to these people. They were substances that were giving, you know, people colorful hallucinations and feelings of euphoria and feelings of maybe being transported to another world like heaven or another dimension. But everything has its drawbacks. In exchange for allowing you to become one with the infinite, these mushrooms can also be super toxic. In an effort to reduce the toxicity and increase the potency of this magic fungus, they would dry them out near a fire, right? During harvesting these mushrooms, they were kept in large bundles near the bottoms of evergreens due to their vibrant color and white dots. They kind of looked like piles of colorfully wrapped packages. And at the end of harvest, all the mushrooms were collected, placed in a large sack, and they would be delivered to other homes. Oh, and it does not stop there. And by the way, I don't know if I said, mentioned this before we move on, that these things were often dried near fireplaces. Like they'd be hung up near fireplaces or dried near fireplaces while they were under trees and, and shit like that as well. So these shamanic um, peoples lived in huts called yurts. They sort of looked like teepees. These yurts were often blocked by snow on all sides because they're in fucking Siberia. So guests would have to enter and exit the home via a specially made hole in the roof. And people could enter this way. Uh, inside, the drying process would be completed by hanging the mushrooms near a fire. So there we go. I thought I skipped over it. Um, so I was wondering during my research how reindeer were going to fit into any of this. And this next part is a little interesting and also a little gross. If you're easily grossed out, just consider yourself warned. But remember how these mushrooms are super toxic. Well, one way to reduce the toxicity of these shrooms was to filter them the oldest of old-fashioned ways. Can you guess what it is? Filter them with your own body. So basically, someone would eat the shrooms, and when they urinated, their pee would still contain elements that caused you to trip, but minus like a certain level of toxicity. So what does this have to do with the reindeer? Well, reindeer love these mushrooms, and they would dig through the snow and eat them right out from under trees, like at full potency unaffected by the poison 
and afterwards they would prance around and stumble playfully for hours. They would urinate afterwards, like right in the snow, and then proceed to eat the snow so that they could trip again. Some believe that shamans observed this behavior and decided to practice drinking their own urine. And on top of that, one of the main visions someone had while they were on magic fungus was to see things like things would appear to be flying. And there's your flying reindeer myth right there. So other things someone might experience while they're on these mushrooms and pretty much every other psychedelic substance is a distortion of space and time. These shamans believe that the world existed in three parts, the lower, middle, and upper worlds. The three worlds were connected by cosmic axis, which is known as the world tree. The tree served as the gateway between these worlds, but also as sort of a highway that one could travel on. In their culture, the Avanki, the world tree was the same pine tree that these mushrooms would grow underneath. These people would often place a pine tree in their yurts or teepees for ceremonial purposes. So there we have the Christmas tree, you know, um, tradition showing up. It was meant to symbolize the world tree and were believed to have harnessed the symbolic power of this tree to propel them on a spiritual journey, likely through meditation and magic mushrooms. Up and out of the hole in the ceiling or the chimney, they would go out of their body during these experiences. And when they returned back from their trip, they would come right back down through the chimney, chimney with their own gifts that they brought with them from the spiritual world. Gifts that were in the form of insight and spiritual guidance. And also, they believed that the North Star was at the very top of the upper world. And because the world tree was an axis that connected the entire cosmology, the North Star sat upon the very top of the world tree, which is why we put a star on the top of our Christmas trees today. This brings us to the last piece of the puzzle. Jesus. How did Jesus become a part of all of this? Loosen your rectums and open your mind, Jesus freaks. Oh, no, Mr. Sir. I ain't going to listen to nobody talk about my precious Jesus. Like, give it a break. You're going to be all right. So according to this story, many others that I've heard in the past, or and many others that I heard in the past, Jesus wasn't really born on December 25th. As a matter of fact, apparently the origin story of Jesus is actually a misunderstood astrological allegory, meaning that the story of Jesus didn't actually take place on Earth with people, but it took place in the sky with stars and other celestial bodies. Long ago, the weather and astronomy were very important to people like the Ivanki like for instance, and it was literally a matter of life and death for people to understand this stuff. But it's not like today where you can just Google things that you need to know. Once information was obtained, people had to pass it on, and this usually took the form of stories and songs. These stories on the surface would seem like silly fantasy mumbo-jumbo to people like us, but, uh, you know, in the modern world, quote-unquote, and sometimes we hear these stories in the modern era and assume our ancient ancestors were dumb or that they didn't understand the world. That's furthest from the truth. They actually had immense understanding but just didn't have a complex system of writing things down in technical terms. Instead, they burned information into other people's minds by hiding the secrets of the world in stories. Often events and characters and whatever that were in these ancient stories were actually representations of constellations, faculties in the brain or the body, behaviors, and more. They told these stories to children, and then the children would grow up and tell these stories to their children, etc. And here's where Jesus allegedly came from, or where the concept came from. On December 21st, the winter solstice, the sun reaches its furthest most southern point, bringing the northern hemisphere its longest night. 
For three days, the sun remains basically unmoved in the sky. I mean, we still have night and day, but in space, it's kind of hovering in the the crux region of the star system. Okay, the crux looks like a cross. On December 25th, the sun resumes its northern ascent again on the crux region of stars. It looks like a cross. Just said that. I repeated it twice because it's important. This is the birth of the sun. So basically, it's an acknowledgement and celebration of the sun's return to the daylight hours. God's sun, the light source, the source of all life in the world, born of a virgin in the constellation of Virgo. Uh, It's pointed to by the constellation of Virgo. uh, And then it rises in the crux region. Or something like that. Ah, fuck. I actually think I mixed this up. So, actually, that's the December 25th story. Then the Easter story is also very similar with uh, Equinox. Oh, God. I messed up my notes. I'm going to have to go back and and revise this. But I'll I'll get the story straight and, like, maybe an update in the next episode. So, without the sun, there's no vegetation, trees, mushrooms, reindeer, etc., etc. The sun was the savior of the world, literally. And essentially, Christmas, Christmas traditions are pagan in practice, merely winter solstice celebrations with some Roman plagiarism tacked on at the end. So we just kind of di- dissected Santa Claus and Christmas traditions. Um... And I can't help but be surprised how many people don't really think about this stuff or or at least want to know more about it. Most people just like the whole Christmas thing. I don't think they want to spoil it for themselves or their kids. Um, but where does Santa... Santa's not fat and jolly, and he doesn't look anything like the Santa that we know and love. Where did this all come from? Check this out. It was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola modernized the look of Santa right now. Like the Santa we all know, the big jolly man in a red suit with a white beard, he didn't always look that way. Prior to 1931, Santa was depicted as everything from a tall, gaunt man to a spooky-looking elf. He's donned a bishop's robe and a Norse huntsman's animal skin. Civil War cartoonist Thomas Nast drew Santa Claus for Harper's Weekly in 1862. And he was a small elf-like figure who supported the Union. Nast continued to draw Santa for 30 years, changing the color of his coat from tan to the red that we know him for today. And in 1931, Coca-Cola commissioned this illustrator named Haddon Sundblom to create the new image of Santa. He depicted him as... Um, actually, his depiction of Santa Claus was debuted in Coca-Cola ads inside of the Saturday Evening Post. The depiction was big, jolly, and wearing a red coat. Santa had a red coat before that ad, though, obviously. Um, Avanki Shaman would wear bright red garments with white dots to show homage to the sacred fungus we talked about earlier. Sunblom hadn't even gotten his final version of Santa until 1964, but his previous versions are highly revered works all over the world. So that's a little bit on the visual concept of Santa.
So what is Christmas all about then? Money, of course, duh. The annual ritual of Christmas is an important one for capitalism. It's usually a highly profitable time for retail. People spend a lot of money at Christmas, usually much more than they can afford. And it's not just on presents, but on food and alcohol, as well as the transport to and from family homes. In the United States, it's been calculated that a quarter of personal, a quarter of all personal spending takes place during the Christmas holiday slash shop shopping season. And um, figures of the U.S. Census Bureau reveal that expenditure in department stores nationwide rose from about 20.8 billion in November of 2004 to. 31.9 billion in December 2004. That's an increase of 54%. In other sectors, the pre-Christmas increase in spending was even greater. There being a November-December buying surge of 100% in bookstores and 170% in jewelry stores. In the same year, employment in American retail stores rose from 1.6 million to 1.8 million in two months leading up to Christmas. So there's like, that's where you see all the temporary jobs start coming in. Industries completely dependent on Christmas include Christmas cards, of which 1.9 billion a dollar, nine or 9. billion Christmas cards are sent in the United States each year, and live Christmas trees, of which 20.8 million were cut down in the U.S. in 2002. So big waste of paper and trees. It's big waste of trees, regardless, out of between the Christmas cards and the fucking evergreens that they're chopping down. So it's not hard to tell why the current version of Christmas is perpetuated in our culture. People do a quarter of their yearly spending on gifts that kids probably are going to forget about really soon, or they're going to break, or they're going to be thrown away. When I was young, I loved Christmas, but now that I'm older, I see how much people struggle to make it a memorable day for their kids, and all the advertising, and all the bullshit that goes with it. All the debt people will go in just so that someone can smile. When they see those Jordans in the box for the first time, when I was little, my grandma used to say, "All this money spent on Christmas, and it only really lasts five minutes." Is Christmas really worth it? Are we getting the biggest bang for our buck? Like, I feel like we're wasting our precious life hours on things that don't really matter. It's just consumerism for the sake of just owning things. Like, you go to work, you make however much money you make an hour. And if you do a 25%, like you spend 25% of your money that you make during the year, or during, or that you spend during shopping anyway, you spend it on Christmas, and we've just established that the whole holiday is not even really built on anything that it, you know, from its origins. You're working your ass off, and you're spending all this money, but for what? Is it returning to you in some way? And it's, is it, is it? Okay, hold on. Let me put it a different way.、I'm、getting tongue-tied. What I'm really trying to say, it seems like it's just a distraction from things that we could be better focused on. Imagine all the money that you spend on Christmas each year. If you were to put it away and save it, you could put your kids through college. You could pay some very important medical expenses that might happen to pop up. You could start a business. You could buy land in a few years. You know, depending on how much money you spend during Christmas or whatever. But You know, and also, if I were a Christian, I feel like I'd want to know what God actually wants me to be doing instead of working my ass off for video games and jewelry. You know, based on all this p- 
patchwork of, of traditions that none of them even come from the whole idea of Christianity in the West. It's just another attack on our financial ignorance and our labor. Like you get paid, say you get paid 15 bucks an hour to do your job. That's an hour of your life that you're trading for $15. Is Christmas worth it under that context? You work really hard for your money and your life hours are gone. They can never be bought back. Don't you think you should do something of value with the money? I think we all should. Maybe we should all turn it into a tradition to eat mushrooms and trip balls instead on Christmas. You spend a lot less money and you come out with some insights, right? Still do all the decorations and all that shit. Just instead of going shopping for Christmas gifts, you hit up your local drug dealer. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I don't know. I the this. Let's just get out of here. I'm going to do this. Uh, get on to our conclusion. Top five takeaways. Basically, what I'm trying to say for this whole episode is, you know, I feel like there just should be some more tradition um, in all of this. And I know, again, this this episode is technically about labor, but I think this is a very important um, picture to see, you know, what you're actually spending your life hours on. You go to work. I, I said this already a little bit, but you go to work, you work your ass off, you get paid so many dollars an hour. You spend 25% of the money that you would spend in a year during Christmas. And then for what? What changes in your life after Christmas? Your kids are going to be ungrateful again, or you're going to forget about the things that somebody bought you. Does it really matter? I think we just need to think a little more critically on why we're doing the things that we do is all. It's a very loose conversation, and it's the last episode, and um, I'd already kind of got it written, so you're going to have to deal with it. Top five takeaways. St. Nick was a real guy. That's number one. Number two, current Western Christmas traditions are based on the practices of mushroom-eating pagan cults. Number three, the birth of Jesus did not take place on December 25th. The Palestinian winters are far too cold, and an infant couldn't possibly sit outside in a manger for longer than like a minute. The story of Jesus is suspected of being a misunderstood astrological allegory. Number four, Coca-Cola is responsible for the jolly old Saint Nick that we know of today. And number five, oh God, I had a toothpick. What am I doing? Toothpick in my mouth. Uh, number five, people do a quarter of their spending on Christmas. I would never say stop celebrating Christmas entirely but i wonder if there's some new ways for people to celebrate just visiting your family just having people over just having dinners at the very least maybe donating things to people that are less fortunate would help repair some of the issues that we have and or maybe buying your family gifts save up for a few christmases and then one year show everybody the deed to the land that you just bought with all the christmas money that would have been spent on shoes and PlayStation controllers and shit. Or not. I mean, you can do whatever you want, to be honest. But it's definitely one of the first things I think about when we talk about labor. All the useless money that we do spend. Because poor people, you know, and I'm talking about people that make less than six figures. Even if you make 
$90,000 a year. It's not really that much money depending on where you're living. If you're in a major city, you have a nice place, an apartment that you rent, or you buy a house, you, you spend a lot of money. And um, I think people's lives are a little more worth it. But the powers that be kind of support advertisements, which support not really thinking about your life as valuable in that way. We kind of want things more than we want peace of mind. We have to keep feeding the machine in order for it to live. And and Christmas is the main component of throwing away our labor. I don't know. I'd like to do another episode about labor at some point, but I thought this one was fun. So uh, that was the last of nine episodes uh, for season one. Talked about the nine divines, the nine areas of spiritual warfare that we're attacked and we just finished the last one. Um, so please like and subscribe to the show. Support me. If you have an idea for a topic suggestion, go ahead and hit me up via email. That's dean at deanxmartian.com. Love you guys, and I'll see you in season two. Peace. Peace.